You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Good evening. I've been very intentional about leaving this passage here for us to look at because it gives us a leg up on what we'll be looking at tonight. And if you're following along in the menu, you'll remember that in the handout, we'll be looking at prophecy next after having looked at covenant law last week. But I want to take a half a step back. And if you remember last week, those of you who could be with us, I spoke of the three most important principles of interpretation. I'm going to help you in case, you know, it's a little of a a fog in your mind. The first one is context. Mm -hmm. Anyone know the second one? Very, Very good, very good. This is Ph.D. material. I want you to know. Third, context. Now, the repetition is, of course, to underscore the importance of how meaning is derived from context. But also the repetition is to help us remember that when it comes to context, we're talking about different levels or kinds of context. And the first one is the historical background, the historical context. The second has to do with the literary context, because all of these passages, of course, are found in a stretch of literature. And then third, the the whole Bible context in the sense of a theological context. And what I decided to do for tonight to launch our discussion is to use this prophecy on the board and to look at it in terms of those three contexts so that we would have uh, an example for us to consider and see how this works. So when it comes to Amos, uh, you'll remember that Amos is one of the minor prophets, minor because it's short. And you'll find it at the end, toward the end of your Old Testament. Now, when it comes to Amos, we happen to be able to date it with some certainty. It's at 760 B.C., so the 8th century, and a contemporary of his was another prophet by the name of Hosea and uh, Isaiah, and a little bit younger would have been a Micah. So there were contemporaries, and in this prophetic tradition or raising up of prophets, they spoke uh, first and foremostly to their setting, to their situation. And what was the situation? This is where the historical background comes into play. And that is, some 200 years earlier, there had been a civil war within Israel. And you had to the north, you can think of our own civil war, to the north was a majority of tribes and population And they took uh, the name, the banner of Israel. To the south was but one prominent tribe, and that was Judah. And they took up the name Judah. So you have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And Amos was not a uh, trained seminarian by any means. He describes himself as a man who was a person of business. We don't know if he was owner or mid-management, where he fit into the scheme, but he talks about how he was a herdsman, 
And then also he worked with sycamore fruit from sycamore trees. And that God called him to go to the north because he was actually from the south, just a few miles south of Jerusalem. And in going to the north, he was going to deliver a message of condemnation. Now, the major thrust of that condemnation was that there is on the scene a rising international power that's going to sweep from the east in the Iraq-Iran area and move west down through Syria. And then those nations that at that time were named the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites and all those ites, and that would include the Israelites and the Judahites. And God was going to use this instrument in order to purge his people because they had fallen into sinful behavior, sinful trends that cut across the arrangement that he had made with them as a group years earlier. And, of course, that's the the covenant arrangement. And the covenant had two axes. One was a loyalty to God, first and foremost, which naturally meant a loyalty to God's people. That would be to, to love your neighbor as yourself. Hosea, his near contemporary, also spoke to the north, and he brought the indictment of their idolatry, that they were failing with that first commandment. When it came to Amos, he especially targeted the problems regarding how the wealthy and the powerful were oppressing what we would call today the underclass, the underrepresented, um, for example, the poor and the foreigner and such. So that's the background. When it comes to the prophets, we usually think of an oracle of salvation. Here comes Jesus Christ. He's going to save the world. And that's the first thought in our mind. And that's a good thought. <laughs> that should be our first thought. But actually, what the prophets were doing was bringing an indictment, foremostly, an oracle of judgment. And so Uh, What does it work here, then, is that God is seen as the plaintiff, and he's bringing a controversy, a lawsuit, a complaint against his people who are the defendants. Now, what's the basis for the lawsuit? Well, the basis for the lawsuit is that covenant arrangement, so that that will be both in the background of the people's thinking as well as the prophet, as well as it's brought forward many times by the prophets. Now, there are some bright spots along the way. Uh, Within the doom and gloom, there will be some bright spots of oracles of salvation. Then once the purging has occurred and is completed, then there will be a work of God to restore his people. Now, that gives you something of the background. Let me talk a little bit about the literature. Amos has nine chapters. 
And what's striking about Amos is, is that even though he may have been a person who was not a trained theologian and he didn't was not in government, it appears that he was close enough to Jerusalem that he was receiving international reports about the movements of various neighboring peoples. Because in the opening two chapters of his work, he talks about God's judgment against the nations. And he talks about those groups I mentioned earlier, the Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, and, for example, the Philistines. And you'll notice in our reading we talked about Edom, and he does have an oracle of judgment against Edom at the beginning. Then he phases into some really hard-hitting messages of condemnation and God's consternation about that northern Israel and its mistreatment of God's people. Then we move into the last paragraph, chapter 9. After all that doom and gloom, then there is the brightest noonday sun that shines gloriously. And that's what we've read about. Because the purging will have been completed, there'll be a restoration of the people. For that great Assyrian Empire will pick up the Israelites, will pick up Judahites, will pick up ites, and carry them off into exile and mix the populations up. And the people will have seemed to have lost everything, but all of this is going to be restored, we are told, in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. So in that day, what day? The day of restoration. Actually, we can describe it as the day of the Lord. And so theologically, we know that what is transpiring here is the prophet Amos is talking about what is about to occur within his own horizon. He can see it coming. That's the near horizon. But also we will learn that he's talking about more than what he can see. He's talking about a far horizon. I'm sure many of you have driven toward a range of mountains. And from a great distance, it does look like maybe there's but one mountain. But as you approach it, you begin to see additional peaks, hills. Because what you don't see from afar, you begin to discover that between the mountains would be what? Valleys. The prophets had that near horizon of what's taking place in their own day but also, looking far, they didn't have the clarity that you and I enjoy. Because we see the different mounts and we see the valleys in between. Because we can see what happened historically in retrospect. So keep that in mind when it talks about that day. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is like a coin that has two sides. On the one side, it was the judgment of God. But on the other side, as it's used here, it was the salvation of God. 
Now, how do we know this is salvation? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? David's fallen hut. A flimsy, a flimsy shelter. And that's the way it's described because David's kingdom fell. Now, David's code word, isn't it? David had been dead for a couple hundred years. <laughs> so what did Amos mean by David? He's talking about the promise that God had made to David and all of David's descendants. This is the household of kings. So in effect, what he's saying is that I, God, will restore the monarchy. It will be a glorious future for David's descendant who takes the throne. And then when he talks about a flimsy shelter, look, he talks about it in contrast to a shelter a tent of walls. Now, here he's talking about Jerusalem, isn't he? Jerusalem's walls, or any walls of an ancient city, were those that gave the first line of major defense. So if the walls were breached, the nation would collapse. Sometimes it would take up to three years to besiege a city and bring down its walls. And... I will rebuild it as it used to be. So that's why I was speaking of restoration. So that they, that is the Israelites, those who restored, may possess a remnant of Edom, the leftovers of Edom. Now that's striking because, as you know, Edomites and Israelites, Judahites, were bitter, bitter enemies. And so what's describing here is a future in which Israel, Judah, because David was over Israel and Judah. You know, it was a single kingdom. It's now a reunited kingdom under his reign. Will be able to possess Edom in the sense of to resist the enemies of Israel and those who were opposed to the outworking of God's kingdom. Then he says, and all the nations that bear my name. What? What? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Israel. Are you trying to say that these nations, like the Edomites of all people, would bear the name of the Lord God? There's only one other place in all of the Old Testament that says that a nation bears the name of God. That's in Isaiah 43, and we know who it is, <laughs> Israel. Now we see that what once was an enemy is now enjoying the same stature as the covenant people of God. What's happening? How could this come to pass? Well, this is where I'm leading you into the theological. The whole Bible approach to a context, because we have a whole Bible. Now, I've given you an illustration of the peaks and the valleys in between. Now it's time for the rubber band illustration. Everybody should carry a rubber band just in case. So you'll see its shape. If you can't see it, imagine it. See its shape. 
But one of the great things about a rubber band is its elasticity. Because I can stretch it and it makes an accommodation for more and more and more and more. So what would be the first horizon, the historical situation in the time of Amos of the 8th century, can now, because of its elasticity, can be tugged and accommodate future fulfillings, that far horizon. And wouldn't you know it, that's what we find in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 15. Do you remember what was happening? There was a council. A group of Christians who were of strong Jewish persuasion said, what are we going to do with all of these nations, these Gentiles that are coming into the household of faith under Jesus Christ? What are we going to do with all these Gentiles that are coming in? Should they be circumcised? Should they become a Jew first before they become a Gentile? And so they had a conference in Jerusalem, and they heard the testimony of Peter. He first said, I want to tell you about Cornelius, a Gentile. He and his household came to faith. In fact, they spoke in tongues, (laughs) which was a confirmation that they too had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as we did at Pentecost. Then Barnabas and Paul stood and spoke. They had just returned from their first missionary journey. They had visited the countries of the Mediterranean, and they saw many, many people come to faith, and they gave that witness. And then James, who was pastor, he stood and he said, These witnesses are confirmed in the scriptures. And did he go to Isaiah? Mm -mm. He went to this passage. And he quoted this passage. And he says, we are seeing this being realized right before our eyes. So the passage that we have before, spoken in the 8th century, is critically important in its application theologically to you (laughs) and to me. Because what is taking place historically in terms of a military arrangement, James understood, as well as that early church setting, that ultimately the military arrangement, the material, physical, historical arrangement was but a type or a picture or foreshadowing of the spiritual. And that is, who is it that has brought in the nations? David's greater son. David's Lord, Jesus Christ. And what about Edom and these nations? Who are they? Well, see, this is representative of all those nations who have been subjugated by David's greater son. And how were they subjugated? The conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
they came under conviction. It was not by oppression, but rather by uh, convincing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord God. So keep that in mind as you think about prophecy, that there is a historical significance that will give us a picture of the future day of the Lord. And we're going to talk about that future day of the Lord here in a few minutes. Now let's go to the next one. The next one is poetry. I could have said Psalms, but poetry is found throughout the whole of the Bible. Some places it's highly concentrated, like what you will find in Psalms. But you will find it in both the Old and the New Testaments. And so you'd be, want to be ready to understand how poetry works. What is the rules for interpreting poetry? Now, when it comes to poetry, perhaps um, you will remember, you may be trying to forget, but you'll have to try and remember what it was like in high school. Do you remember? Iambic pentameter. And we learned how we measured or interpreted poetry in terms of what we call meter, rhythm, in, uh, in terms of stress and unstress syllables. That's classic Greek and Latin poetry. But good news, that's not the way poetry works in the ancient Near East at all. You can put your iambic pentameters away because the constituent building blocks is much easier to recognize. And so for a demonstration of this, I'd like for you, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 2. And if not, we'll just listen up real good when it comes to Psalm 2, which is a very important psalm. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. And as you can see, since it occurs with Psalm 1, it's introductory to the whole of the hymnic book, Psalms. And before I launch into the particular description of poetry, I want us to think for a moment. Why is it that people love the Psalms? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all is that so much of the Old Testament has to do with nations, big groups of people, states. But when you come to the Psalms, what are you looking at? Individuals. And that's much easier for us, isn't it, as Christians, to resonate with. Because when it comes to Christians, we don't have borders. <laughs> and, and we don't have human monarchs. It's a, a different arrangement. So uh, we, we really identify with the psalmists who speak out of the whole person that they are. They speak of their experiences, their high moments, their low moments. And that's what poetry does, actually. Poetry grabs you as the whole person. It grabs your intellect, but also your emotions, because you begin to feel what the psalmist feels. But also your imagination. And then, as I said, all of your senses. So it grabs you as a whole person. That's one reason why we love the psalms and its poetic verse. So if we'll look then at Psalm 2, 
what we have here at the beginning is an element of poetry that is, like I said, the building block. And that is repetition. The uh, scholarly experts will say it has to do with parallelism. Restating the same thing, maybe not using the same words every time, no, not by any means, but restating in some way the same idea, maybe taking the idea and building on it, but roughly the same idea. So Psalm 2 starts that way. If you look at it, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? That's a rhetorical question. That's what the psalmist is saying. But notice the parallel, nations and people conspire or rage and then vanity or emptiness. So you can see it's really saying the same thing in essence. That is the bloodstream of poetry, that kind of repetition. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together. Let's stop right there, halfway. Do you see kings and rulers parallel each other? Now, of the earth is gapped, left out. It's not necessary to say rulers of the earth. It's already been stated once, so it's assumed rulers of the earth. And then they gather together. And so you see in verse 1 it talks about a conspiracy. And then it describes the nations coming together with conspiratorial aims. Verse 2 continues to describe what is the substance of their agenda against the Lord. They want to conspire against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, to, to raise and pique your interest, you could translate this into Greek, and it would read this way, and against his Christ. So, then, well, I'm getting more interested in this. Is, is this ultimately talking about Christ? And the answer is yes. But I want you to notice the word Lord here. Do you notice how it's in all caps? Little caps, but they're caps. Now, why is that? Well, because from the time of Greek, way back before the time of Christ, there was a sacredness attached to the name of God. That name we pronounce Yahweh. And so when the Jews came to Yahweh in the sacred text, they would not say Yahweh, they would say Lord, Adonai. And since that tradition passed on to the church all the way up to the present moment, English has told you by the capital letters what is that name. Because, you know, there are other names for God. El, Elohim, El Shaddai, so forth. 
But when it's in all caps like this, it's naming the particular name of the covenant Lord that was revealed to Israel. This Yahweh then refers to the God of the covenant, Israel's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when it says against the Lord, it's not just any Lord. They're not throwing off the shackles of any god in the great pantheon of gods in the ancient Near East. They're targeting the God of Israel. And in particular, they're targeting his anointed one. Now, anointed one is the language of a king. So when I say his anointed one, his Christ, we're talking about God's appointed vice-regent. God's the regent, but he's appointed, in this case, David. We will learn that this is David as, as representing him, so much so that he could say of David in verse 7 that you are my son. And today, I am your father. So, this means that David is a representative of God. Doesn't mean that he is God, but that he is a representative of God. So, when they oppose David, remember Amos' example, when they oppose David, they're really opposing God. And if they're going to oppose God, they're going to oppose David. Because they're seen as essentially one in the same. So that's the repetition that you will find when it comes to the building blocks of uh, poetry. Now, I'm going to go ahead and launch us into the New Testament. And did you know that these two verses are quoted in the New Testament? You'll find it in Acts chapter 4, and I'll just give you the quick background on that. What essentially has happened is that uh, Peter and John have been arrested because they're preaching the gospel illicitly, unlawfully. And they've been put in jail temporarily and then released. And they go back to the community that's meeting in a house and the community of the church is praying for them and asking God to deliver them, and they show up. And the people receive them with such joy. And then they quote these two verses and apply these two verses to what they've just witnessed. You see, the nations, that is, the opponents of God, the opponents of, can I dare say this, David's greater son, <laughs> Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. They have opposed the preaching of this gospel. And so they thought it altogether appropriate then to remember from Psalm 2, from David's own lips, that the peoples are going to reject the gospel. They're going to reject the son. But that's not the end of the story as you would continue to read Psalm 2. And that is ultimately the victory 
of the anointed one over the nations. And when it comes then to the gospel, it is the victory of the message of the gospel over those who would oppose it. Now, let's go to Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. I want to give you a little insight into another feature of poetry we need to pay attention to, and that's figures of speech. You know what a figure of speech is? A figure of speech is a diversion from what is normal meaning of words, uh, the literal meaning of words, if you want to think of it this way. And what we find when it comes to poetry is that there are figures of speech that are, comp are comparative like, as, such and such is like this or that. And then also you can substitute words that will uh, convey meaning. So, for example, uh, we know that, did you know this, that the, that the pen is mightier than the sword? Did you know that? See how pen is substituted for what? The writings... The sword is representative, stands in for military aggression. And how did you figure that out? <laughs> it came to you instantaneously because you know what a pen is about, and you know what a sword is about. Plus, you gave it a context if you know anything about American history. And even if you didn't, well, you made up a context and it fit after all. Because you can't understand anything without context. And when it comes to chapter 40, here we have in Isaiah a call to the prophets to deliver a message now of comfort and restoration because the time of purgation is complete. And so what we find in verse 6 is all flesh is like grass. In all its glory is like the flowers of the field. Now, my version actually reads, all men are like grass. I bet that's what you have, too. But literally, it's flesh. See, that's a figure of speech. You know what your translators have done? They said, well, I'm not too sure our eighth grade audience, because translations are written for eighth graders, and... Uh, I'm not sure they capture the idea of flesh. Now we better translate and interpret the figure. So that's why you have all people, all men here. But it says literally all flesh is like grass. Now I bet you know what that means. When I say all flesh, what do you think I'm talking about? Well, flesh can be substituted for humans. There's such a close affiliation between flesh and being a human, because <laughs> we all have flesh. Like, like, see, that's where comparison comes in, like grass. So we know that grass comes and goes, and it continues. In all its glory is like the flowers of the field, you see, that come and go. So humanity comes and goes. Humanity is weak, vulnerable. 
And then if you look at verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but in contrast, see, this is where the imagery is useful to the poet. The word of our God stands forever. This is quoted by Peter, talking about the transitory nature of of humanity. We come and go, but the truthfulness of the word of God stands forever. You want to talk about gospels? Let's go to gospels. A gospel is a theological biography. I say biography with some hesitation because it's not the kind of biography we would tell. You remember in the four gospels, we only have two birth narratives. Can you imagine picking up a biography, and it doesn't tell you any more about the background of that figure in early years of that figure. So it's not a full-orbed biography, but rather it is a biography that is designed to achieve an end or a purpose, and that is a theological end or purpose. And what you'll find is we have four Gospels. Now, why in the world do we have four Gospels? It just seems to me that we could get along with just one. You know, one book of Acts. Why do we need four Gospels? And that's because the four authors of the Gospels have different themes, objectives in mind. Matthew, he wants to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mark, he gives it to us right up the front, the Son of God. He wants to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Son of God. Luke, Luke is the first investment. Acts is his second work. In each of these, Luke and Acts, he concentrates on those who are the outsiders. Luke himself was a Gentile. He roamed about with the Apostle Paul in those missionary journeys. So he talks about the Gentiles in particular. He talks about children. He talks about women. And also he has an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. John. John is the last of the four. The range of dates would be from approximately 60 A.D. to John maybe as late as 90 A.D. John is much more reflective. He steps back and takes a broader view of the whole of Jesus' life. And where does he start? He starts even before the beginning because he draws on Genesis and speaks of how in the beginning was the Word. And he defines who that word is, Jesus Christ. And he says particularly in John chapter 20, I am writing this so that you may believe. That was his purpose, was to convince his audience that Jesus Christ was indeed the Savior. And so along the way, you will find in John's gospel, he will be gathering information the stories that he has received, the things that he has witnessed, and he's shaping it to achieve that objective. This is true of those first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why you'll find differences. It's not that they're contradictions. 
It's just that they're choosing certain episodes and certain sayings of Jesus that advances their cause. So when it comes to one gospel, you can see not one gospel is designed to accommodate all. And we need the four gospels giving us those four depictions. And these four gospels then show us just on the surface of it how uh, deep and wide, how complex, how mysterious is the person of Christ. And we need four witnesses, not just the one. Now, the way to uh, get into a gospel is I'm going to give you a recollection of John chapter 2. This has to do with the clearing out of the temple. All four Gospels refer to the clearing out of the temple. John does so at the beginning of his Gospel, John chapter 2. The other three, they give the clearing out of the temple at the end of their Gospel, toward the end of the Gospel. And the reason why they're at different points in the ministry of Jesus is because, again, of their arrangement of the material to advance their interest. What John wants to show is that this is one of seven signs that Jesus showed his authority. And uh, the first sign was the changing of water into wine. And so the theme that John picks up with is the new. And he talks about the new wine. And then he talks about the new temple. He says, my body is the new temple. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And then John comments, after the case, after the resurrection, we disciples figured it all out. <laughs> then Jesus is on the, on the land, as you know, on the earth, for 40 days after his resurrection. And that was a seminary education itself. And so he put it all into proper arrangement for them. Now, he speaks of a new birth in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he talks about the woman at the well. And God is looking for those who will worship the Lord in a new way, in spirit and in truth. And, of course, his body has become the temple. So that's the way John is using that event. Now let's move on to our letters. Uh, letter is a translation of a Greek word, epistle. And um, so the, the, the seminarian who was candidating for a pastoral position on search for in front of our search committee, they, they wanted him to, to name the epistles. I mean, any pastor, you don't want to be able to know the, the epistles. So they said, what are the epistles? He thought, he thought, hmm. the wives of the apostles. That's a joke. Just go right over you. I know we're almost out. All right. Epistles. These are letters, but they're not personal letters like you and I are accustomed to writing. Because the letter form in the ancient Near East was used for many, many other kinds of documentation. 
For example, they were used, can you believe this? A letter form was used for government documents. That was used for military documents. It was used for legal documents. It was common. It was, it was the Tupperware of the ancient Near East. Letters every which direction. So Paul took that basic letter writing and he adapted it, as did the other apostles in the New Testament, and adapted it for his purpose. So he wasn't tied, and I keep speaking of him because 13 of the letters are written by him, the majority. He wasn't tied to a fixed form. He would manipulate it in order to infuse it, his theological worldview. Let me just give you one example. The way typically a letter would begin is with the words or word greetings. And in Greek, that's kairine. Greetings. You know how Paul would send his greetings at the beginning of a letter? Grace and peace to you. Grace in Greek is charis. Carine, greetings. Charis, grace. So you can see he used what they were familiar with, but arranged it in such a way that it would convey his context of an apostle writing to churches. Now, when it came to these letters, say, for example, Romans, why is he writing these letters? Does he sit down under a tree and looking at the apple before it falls and says to himself, I think I'll write me a letter? No, it came to his attention. There's a problem in this church, and I've got to address this problem. So what you will find is, is that he, in his letters, doesn't address any and every issue at one place or even every issue you can think of. But he's on the ground. And he is addressing problems that particular churches are having in terms of the inner problems as well as how they are seen outside. So when it comes to the Pauline letters, you're going to have an introduction, just like you would write a letter. You would have a body of the letter. And then usually at the end, he would have a doxology, a praise, a conclusion. And look for how he addresses these specific problems within this particular church. Okay, quickly, ready? Here we go. You have any questions? Hmm, that is a really good question. Um, I like to teach the covenant law because it's such a mystery in the minds of most. I love to teach that. But as far as my own personal devotional reading and, and the like, it'd be Psalms or Romans. Psalms or Romans. Psalms. Hmm. What's yours, Jacob? Yeah, you do, you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yes. Okay, and now on the toolbox, that handout with bibliography. You say, do I have to go to seminary to know how to do all this? No. Now, if you want to, we'd be happy for you to come. No, you don't. So many now tools are available to you. Your carpenter has to have the right tools. If you want to be a better interpreter of Scripture, you need some good tools. And I've given you a list on both sides. These are recommendations. There are others just about as good. I recommend that you purchase some of these or access some of these. And the study Bible is really great with the introductions, the charts, maps, notes on the text. Another very useful tool is a dictionary. You say to yourself, I didn't know all that stuff about Amos and Edom. Well, guess what? In a Bible dictionary, where do you go? You go to A, Amos. And it'll give you everything I said plus so much more. And it's very insightful and helpful to you. Now you say, well, I just don't have the shekels to buy these tools right now. Let me, let me suggest to you another way or two. Did you know that there is in this church a library? I walk by it every day. <laughs> I'm here. But I could stop in. <laughs> And do you know that we have a number of these resources? You say, well, I'm not sure how to use a library. There's the librarian. You know, I've never met a librarian that turned away someone who wanted a, an answer. They would love for you to come in and say, well, Dr. Matthews, he, he gave me this uh, dictionary business here. And, and do you have that on your shelf? <gasps> yes or no, but I've got some others. And you can use these right from the library. Another way of, to do it is at Christmas time. Let Aunt Lulu know that on your Amazon list you have some books that would really be helpful to you in your Christian world. And I bet you that would be under your tree. That's a great way to do it as well. Yes. Yes, I can say that when it comes to translations, that uh, translations have translation theory. And so you can move from what we would call loosely literal to thought for thought. See, on the literal, it's closer, not exactly the same, word for word but you got to put it in english syntax and you got to use english words that people use commonly so it's not precisely the same as greek and hebrew but it tries as best as it can to reflect that and then you move along to thought for thought here the translator says i understand the thought of amos or john or the apostle paul now I'm going to express that thought in English. And I'm going to use really good English literary skills here. So it's not, it's not so much word for word or form for form as it is thought for thought. And you have a, a, a range. 
Now, I can give you some uh, ideas on the word-for-word, -word, the English Standard Version, the Home and Christian Standard Bible, uh, the New Revised Standard Version. Now, if you want to move to thought-for-thought, then probably the New International Version is moving that direction, sort of in between. But the New Living Translation is thought for thought. Then there's one that's not really a translation, but more of an embellishment. This is what we call a paraphrase. And so there's a lot of addition that's not really found in a text, but the whole purpose is to explain and the one that is most popular today is called the message, right? The message, very popular. Yeah, and it has a wonderful way of grabbing you. <laughs> when you think you understand it, reading the, that, and it really grab your, your mind and your imagination. Now, which is the best translation? And this is what I say when people ask me, which is the best translation? And, you know, as Jacob said the other day, <laughs> it's the one that you will read. So if you have one you won't read, then get one you will read and stick with it. Okay. Question. When you talk about the Bible coming down from the time it was originally mm -hmm. inspired and written, and how mm -hmm. it didn't change mm -hmm. coming through, mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, and obviously it's it's in a translation versus that of Hebrew and Greek in the original. Uh, we don't have the originals, but we uh, you know under under a, a plate of glass in a museum. But what we do have is a whole bunch of copies, and in those copies are the original words. <laughs> so it's really hard work, but we can put it together with a great deal of clarity and certainty. So when it comes to a translation, two things I would say. Jewish and Christian traditions have always believed in translations. The earliest translation of the Old Testament was in Greek about 250 years before Christ in a Greek-speaking world of Egypt. But did you know the Quran is not translated? If you want to be a student of the Quran, you've got to know Arabic. Now, there are unauthorized translations, but there's no belief in a translation when it comes to our Bible, translations from the very outset was seen as absolutely necessary to put God's Word in everybody's hands. Now, this, uh, a second factor is somehow, some way, God in His marvelous anticipation of the translations is able to secure and convey the message even though it has been translated in a wide variety of translations. 
so that the translation, it's in English, it's not in Hebrew, it's not in Greek, but I can still say with confidence, this is the word of God. And so can you. So what am I saying? I'm speaking on both sides of my mouth. (laughs) Because what I'm saying is, is that in terms of change, we can access the original words and reconstruct the text. So there's no change there. But there has been change in the many, many copies that are made of the original text. And, of course, differences in translations. It's a good question, but it's a really hard question. Did you think about that a long time? <laughs> Anybody else? I think, Jacob, we're ready to move on. Or you, <laughs> Brad. Uh, well, let's take Dr. Matthews. Thank you so much. <laughs>